This week, our Frankly Speaking podcast recorded on Thursday, the 12th of May, 2022, is live from the European Young Leaders three-day seminar on the topic of saving democracy from itself. Situated in the heart of Western Balkans in Zagreb, Croatia, we discuss how strong relations can be deepened between the EU and the Western Balkans in light of a free and democratic press. In this episode, I'm joined by a young European leader and well-regarded advocate of the free press, Mary Fitzgerald, who is a former war correspondent now working as a researcher on Libya, senior fellow for peace, security and defence, and our expert in hybrid warfare and disinformation, Chris Kremidis courtney also joins us today. This week, we discuss the role of a free press as a crucial pillar of a functioning democracy and the risks of fighting for truth and justice, particularly in a time of war on the European continent. Following the recent assassination of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla in the West Bank, the continued and deliberate targeting of journalists in Ukraine and the threats against the press in Russia, we ask how journalists can better be protected. In this world of fake news and disinformation, how can quality media regain and maintain readers' trust? And finally, who's winning the propaganda war and what is open source intelligence? Good morning to you, Mary and Chris, and thanks for joining today. I'd like to kick off this first question to you, Mary, about the protection of journalists. Yesterday's deliberate shooting dead of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla in the West Bank has clearly sent shockwaves around the world and more so among uh, foreign correspondents. It seems to be happening all too often. In the context of the war in Ukraine, we've seen the continued targeting of journalists in Russia who are now threatened with violence, prison sentences, or worse, if they speak out uh, about the war. And then there is the deliberate targeting of journalists and their crew reporting from the front line in Ukraine. What can we do to protect journalists who work in such conditions? Thank you very much, uh, Tracy. It's a pleasure to join you both for this uh, for this very important discussion. And indeed, you mentioned um, the uh, killing of Shireen Abu Akhla in uh, in the West Bank in Janina, in the West Bank yesterday. Um, Al Jazeera, her employer, has accused the Israeli military of uh, of targeting her. Um, there's, uh, as is usually the case, a lot of uh, contesting claims. But one thing that really chilled um, many foreign correspondents, those who work, um, and, and other journalists indeed, those who work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but also conflicts elsewhere, was a quote from the Israeli military spokesman yesterday, um, where basically he uh, described uh, Shireen Abu as filming and working for a media outlet amidst armed Palestinians. He went on to say, they're armed with cameras. Now, that is such a chilling line, the idea of journalists being armed with cameras. And I would uh, argue that it's uh, it's a line that reflects a belief by belligerents in uh, many conflict zones uh, today. During my career as a, a journalist who covered conflicts, um, in many different places from Afghanistan to Syria, Somalia, uh, Libya, starting my career actually in, in Belfast in, in Northern Ireland when it was at the post-conflict uh, period. I've noticed throughout my career how journalists went in from being it within the conflict zone context um, 
people that were essentially tolerated by the belligerents, because this was the era before smartphones, before social media. So there was a, a certain tolerance of journalists in that belligerents in a conflict knew that they had to, um, in many cases, engage with journalists if they wanted to get their perspective conveyed to the world. Journalists were still considered uh, problematic, of course, but they, they were tolerated in that sense. With the advent of social media um, and, uh, and other technology where belligerents realized that actually they could reach audiences directly through social media, through YouTube, et cetera, um, they did not have to engage with journalists. So journalists became instead these um, pesky uh, at best and dangerous at worst um, people in a conflict zone that challenged the narratives of belligerents and therefore became targets. So I think if we look back on the last, say, 12 years in, in particular, in, in living memory, there, there's never been a more dangerous time to be a journalist. Um, Shireen's killing yesterday uh, brought the number of journalists killed so far this year to 17. That's according to figures um, gathered by the Committee to Protect Journalists. Of course, many of the others in that death toll were killed in Ukraine, a considerable number uh, killed in, in Mexico, one of the most dangerous countries for, for journalists. Um, but, you know, we, there is a crisis now, I think, in terms of the, um, the risks to reporting conflict um, verse, and, and then, of course, the, the enduring value of the kind of journalism we see coming from conflict zones and, and particularly uh, Ukraine. Uh, recently, in the case of Shireen Abu Akhla, what was very striking in terms of the tributes to her yesterday was the number of young people across the Middle East and North Africa who talked about how they had grown up um, uh, watching Shireen's uh, reporting um, and how it shaped them as, as a generation. And they felt that she had, you know, done the kind of reporting that up to that point had... Um, perhaps not been um, so easy to, to find if you were a young person growing up in, in the Middle East and North Africa. So underscoring the importance um, of bearing witness, which is essentially what journalists who cover war do. They're there to bear witness, which is a different type of journalism in many ways to the kind of journalists, uh, the kind of journalism that uh, reporters do in, in societies that are not experiencing conflict. In your opinion, what can we do to protect uh, journalists working in, in conflict zones specifically? Well, this type of journalism has, has always been dangerous. It's be just become more dangerous. Um, I think that the there are limited options in terms of making this work less dangerous. Obviously, um, the journalists themselves can do things to mitigate uh, the the um, the risks that they face, but there's only so much you can do. Um, you know, those of us who've done that kind of work, who continue to do that kind of work, um, you know that there are things that you you will do. You have your own risk assessment. Some uh, will have a different risk assessment to to others in terms of the um, what they're willing to to do, um, but. You know, at the end of the day, your your reporting is in the middle of a live um, conflict zone, so that's always going to be dangerous. I, I think the idea that 
there are ways for those other than the journalists doing the work themselves to decrease that risk. Um, I'm not sure there are many actual um, options there. Okay, that's that. Thank you for that. I, I want to stay with you for this next question. Um, we've seen Trump and now Putin um, casting doubt in people's minds um, with all their talk of fake news and disinformation, um, and it's made it harder for journalists to be believed. How, in your opinion, can quality media regain uh, and maintain readers' trust? Well, I think that there was um, a period in the early um, part of the last decade where, you know, there was a sense. And then with the um, election of Trump in, in 2016, of course, Brexit around the same time, there was this um, panic, if you like, about um uh, disinformation about um, the kind of traditional media being overwhelmed by this flow of, of disinformation. However, I think it was really heartening to see that uh, throughout the Trump uh, presidency, we saw, um, you know, kind of, if you like, heritage media outlets, particularly in the US, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they saw their subscriptions increase hugely, um, which showed that there was actually a hunger there uh, for quality journalism that people saw as trustworthy and reliable. So that was really heartening, I think. Similarly, we see um, another heritage uh, media outlet, the BBC, um, retains um, you know, enormous uh, trust um, and, uh, and influence. Of course, we we know in terms of what's happening in the UK again, um, you know that the the BBC's future, at least the future of of the output that people have expected from the BBC for a long time, you know there are risks to that um, in terms of the political situation in Britain right now. But I think that looking at those. Um, you know, heritage media outlets, the fact that they do still retain the trust of a very large number of people, and in some cases are gaining new audiences, that's something that is, um, is very positive. Um, and I think that, you know, this idea that some people um, argue that uh, basically the horse is bolted from the stable, that, you know, traditional media, it's, it's, it's kind of over in a sense. It's very difficult for them to reinvent themselves, to adapt to the new patterns of uh, media consumption. I would, um, I think there's an element of truth to that, but uh, the fact that we have seen some of those uh, more traditional outlets gaining new audiences shows that there is hope that this is something that um, can be done. It's just a way of coming. It's just a question of coming up with ideas in which you reinvent yourself and you're able to reach out and gain uh, those um, new audiences. But I think one thing I found fascinating in terms of the Ukraine war is, you know, over the years, I met um, many people in Europe who told me that they considered Russia today as um as a, as a good media outlet. They thought it was good to, as they saw it, provide an alternative perspective, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What I found fascinating is um, the impact that the interviews Margarita Simonyan, the head of Russia today, has given uh, on uh, Russian media since the war in Ukraine started, um, where she is clearly um, pushing an extremely hard line 
uh, view on the, on the on the conflict, Russia's role in the world, etc. So many of those masks have have fallen, and I think the reality of Russia today, as the um, Kremlin-funded uh, media outlet that was was most prevalent um, across the world, that some of those masks are, are falling now, and people are starting to see Russia today for what it is, as opposed to thinking, no, this is merely an alternative uh, perspective. I think it's also interesting over the last decade in particular, we saw apart from Russia today, a lot of media outlets that were also um, Russia uh, state funded that presented themselves as progressive. Mm. So these were media outlets that um, basically were pitched at American audiences, pitched at Anglophone audiences, Audiences, uh, pitched at other targeted audiences across the world, really presenting this kind of um, supposedly progressive agenda, talking, uh, railing about uh, Western imperialism, really trying to reach out to a particular um, uh, demographic, I think, that was very, very interesting. And I would say that quite a lot of that messaging was, was quite successful. However, I think we're seeing as a result of the Ukraine war, again, a realization that this was not quite as people thought it was. Um, now, where that realization is going to go uh, remains to be seen. But I think, again, a lot of illusions have been have been shattered uh, since the invasion of Ukraine. And, and particularly in terms of how these the Russian state uh, media outlets um, are, are perceived Indeed, I, as you say, um, the masks are um, are coming off, and uh, and the real messaging behind is being revealed. I'd like to be uh, bring in um, Chris uh, now. Um, Chris, you are our resident expert in disinformation and hybrid threats, um, and uh, and of course, uh, defence of democracy, which is what we're talking about here in in Zagreb today. Um, let me put this next question to you. During many election cycles in, in Europe, there was uh, a lot of uh, Russian disinformation trying to influence the outcomes of elections and so on. And since uh, the war in Ukraine began, the West has blocked a lot of the Russian propaganda channels. So does this mean um, that we are succeeding in fending off their disinformation? Who's winning the propaganda war right now? And what have we learned and what can be applied elsewhere? Over to you, Chris. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning, Mary. And it's great to be with you today. And, and thank you for the question. Uh, let's unpackage a few things here to, to talk about this. And I think the, the first one is a little you know header to place on this that in a globalized world, every war is global. And I think we're seeing that play out right here. And I'll, I'll, I'll outline that now. And I think you know, a good deal of Russia's disinformation and any disinformation effort always relies on a primed audience built up over years. You know, we saw that in situations, um, we saw it in the, dis in the dynamic of the disinformation campaigns that led to Brexit, to the election of Donald Trump. I mean, these started two and three years prior building the audiences. And as Mary rightly pointed out, they're not just aimed at sort of right-wing pro-voters, but, uh, you know, in the Trump situation, it was convincing people to sit out the election. 
you know, but they got the outcome they wanted. Uh, we saw it in the anti-vax disinformation, which led to new outbreaks of the measles. People forget before the most recent pandemic, what if, you know, that in Ukraine, there were record numbers of cases of measles uh, due to disinformation, among other things. And we've seen it in, in various efforts to influence European elections. You know, we've seen it, you know, in 2017, French national elections. We've seen it in Germany. We've seen it in Italy. Uh, and more recently, in the global coronavirus pandemic, we've seen uh, the impact of disinformation, and not just disinformation, but disinformation that's aimed at a, a particular audience that has been primed over years. So it's a bit like building a pipeline to people's hearts and minds. And so later on, whatever you deliver through that pipeline, they're more likely to believe. So you can start out with, do you like this kind of music? Do you, uh, or, you know, or do you think the, you know, colonial imperial powers of the West, you know, need to stop doing what they're doing, whatever it may be. You build an audience that way, you prime an audience, and then you can later feed it whatever information. But the Ukraine situation is showing what a difference a whole of society uh, effort can make to counter these narratives. Uh, you know, narratives such as, you know, the, like, for example, the Russian narrative that, um, you know, Ukrainians, and, or, or Ukrainians are fascists or Nazis, that they're killing Russians, all, all of which has been proven to be nonsense. Um, and it reminds me in 2021, in our Friends of Europe hybrid tabletop exercise, we identified the concept of information first responders. You know, these are sort of hyper-empowered individuals and civil society actors who can quickly respond to disinformation narratives within their communities, within their language groups, within their, their online communities. And in late February of this year, just a week or so before the invasion, we already saw hundreds of citizens and civil society groups out there debunking Russian disinformation by looking at embedded geolocation and time data on videos uh, to find out or finding out something was old footage from past conflict. Again, hyper-empowered individuals with technical skills, with access to both the information and access to broader audiences to disseminate this. And in, in fact, some of the participants in our last tabletop were a part of this. I mean, I was seeing <laughs> I was seeing those people going out and doing they weren't just they didn't just think about the idea of information first responders. They were going out and doing that and being that uh, they were all I mean, to the point where they were even tracking Russian forces by their music, their, their soldiers music downloads on shareware sites because you give up geolocation data anytime you, do, you download music like that. So, you know, and, and, and young people do like free music. And so, you know, Russian soldiers were, were no exception. So this was another way they could be tracked. But what's, what's interesting about these hyper, I call them hyper empowered because it's a level of, it's a, it also requires a skill level to do some of these technical bits. But they're taking these actions quickly and sharing them on social media where they, they're already shared well beyond their own personal networks. Governments and media companies are also working to debunk disinformation, but the private and civil society actors are proving to be much more, much faster, much more responsive. We've also seen this availability of photos on social media, TikTok videos. Um, you know, there were about an average of 7.1 billion TikTok video views globally prior to this war. I think we're up to 17 or 18 billion views per day now. Uh, overhead imagery from private firms like Maxar are being used by former intelligence analysts with training ex and experience to kind of tell you what you're seeing. So for example, you'll have, and I've seen some of this personally, people send me things and I'll pass them on or whatever, but you'll have, for example, uh, someone in Ukraine will make a TikTok video of a column of something going past in their town. They'll upload it online and some former intelligence analyst from the Danish Defense Forces who's now retired and I don't know, maybe hanging out without much to do, will look at that, 
use their skills to identify what that is and what that indicates and then upload that back out. And there's a, there's a whole conversation happening uh, with people all over Europe, all over the West, um, Japan, Australia, a number of places. So it's, it's remarkable that what's happening is this is really the um, citizen engagement in defending Ukrainian democracy. So it's more than just, you know, the media has always been trying to doing this, but now you have citizens actively engaged in this. Um, and I think, well, what's interesting is um, while these activities are about these hyper-empowered groups and individuals can prove decisive in achieving an information advantage, at least in this, you know, in this Western area, um, they conduct these efforts outside of any official hierarchy. So, you know, it's, they're not they're not under any government's control. Um, and so, you know, this makes some governments nervous, obviously. But instead, they're motivated by a combination of moral outrage and moral obligation. And that moral leadership is coming from President Zelensky himself. So to your question about who is winning, I think that depends on this information war. I think it depends on where you stand. So within the West, Ukraine's narrative is winning. But in China, India, much of Africa, uh, the, the Russian narrative is really holding sway. They're also making great efforts to spread Russian disinformation about this war in the Balkans. So I think this is one thing. It's easy for us to say, yay, we're winning the info war, but only sort of within this broader Western democratic sphere. So, you know, while a powerful Ukrainian narrative has helped it to gain like really unprecedented levels of backing from Western democracies, uh, Russia's ability to keep much of the rest of the world on side or at least neutral helps them to cushion some of the impacts of Western sanctions and to find new suppliers for certain material that they're, for their war effort and to keep their economy uh, going. So again, in a globalized world, I, you know, I think this is an example of how every war is global, but it's also the role of the individual, the role of the, the private actor um, to influence events on the other side of the world or just you know, far away. So I think this is, this is something we'll be grappling with for some time. Uh, and I think this is something that we're going to, you know, this is this is something we're going to be seeing in the future. My my one concern with this particular aspect is that people who are motivated motivated by moral means um, can also be manipulated by disinformation itself. So you know, this swarm of actors who are sort of acting like you know individual white blood cells attacking the virus in the body. Um, what happens? You know, what happens if that becomes an autoimmune sort of <laughs> response where? they can be directed against their own governments, right? I mean, we saw an example of that in the, the 6th January 2021 sacking of the U.S. Capitol. You had people who thought they were saving their country when, in fact, they were not. They were doing the opposite. So this, to me, is sort of this, these, these hyper-empowered individuals, this um, devolvement of power so to more uh, private and localized actors, um, and the dynamic of what that means for our future. So I, I'll leave it at that, but I think it's, it's sort of, there's the, the, to sum it up, the response to disinformation also includes a disinformation vulnerability. It's really interesting that you bring up this whole of society approach and citizen engagement. I just wonder, Mary, um, what is the role of the media in sort of channeling um, or giving credibility to the, the citizen engagement that Chris has talked about? Is there one? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think over the last um, decade or so, as as we've seen um, social media gain such uh, the momentum it has today, we have seen uh, traditional media outlets 
trying to engage with that and trying to harness that, um, if you like, hybrid uh, coverage. So bringing audiences and, and readers, et cetera, into the conversation, um, you know, seeing how they can basically respond and, and create a kind of a conversation between the media outlets and uh, their audiences through um, through using social uh, social media. Um, you know, going back to, to what Chris was saying there, what has been fascinating is watching how, in many ways, in Ukraine, Russia is using a playbook that was um, f- that is familiar to those of us who cover the Middle East and North Africa. Um, as someone who covered, uh, for a brief period, the Syrian conflict, you know, not only are we seeing battlefield tactics that are the exact same as what Russia did in in Syria, we're also seeing disinformation tactics. And uh, also, I would say, as somebody who works on on Libya, um, you know, Russia has been involved in the Libyan civil conflict for a number of years now. There's a presence of Russian forces, including uh, Wagner mercenaries on the ground. But we've also seen how Russia, um, uh, with its uh, Libyan partners, if you like, has influenced the scene through disinformation and propaganda. Propaganda, whether it's through social media accounts, whether it's through the engagement and training, et cetera, of certain Libyan uh, media outlets. We, as the Russians got involved in the Libyan civil conflict, we saw the um, the disinformation part of that conflict changing in ways that were quite, again, as I said, familiar to those who were watching what Russia was doing um, elsewhere. You know, going back to your question, uh, Tracy, we have, of course, seen over the last uh, decade or so the um, the advent of so-called citizen journalism. Again, this was something that social media very much encouraged the idea that, you know, um, in today's world, everybody is is a journalist. Everybody has a camera on their phone. And uh, and we've seen, you know, so many positives coming from that um, type of citizen journalism, where, of course, in areas and conflicts where you don't have um, uh, traditional trained journalists there, um, of course, ordinary people filming things and and then that's making the news and and, and creating um, a different type of conversation. We also, of course, have seen negative aspects of of citizen journalism. I've seen this myself um, in both Syria and uh, and Libya, where you have people who are partisans of a conflict and have um, a particular reason then to portray certain aspects of that conflict in, in certain ways. And, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about a, a kind of a public now that is really quite um, savvy when it comes to um, media, really quite sophisticated in terms of how narratives are formed, how narratives are pushed, how narratives can influence a policy, how they can influence the wider conversation. We didn't have that 15 or 20 years ago. That's really new. So going back to your earlier question in terms of how more traditional uh, media outlets um, can can uh, not just survive in, in that kind of world, but also cut through the noise. This is um, an ongoing uh, conversation, an ongoing question, and a, a question to which I think there are no easy answers because of the reasons we discussed earlier, whereby you know traditional media outlets um, are trying to regain lost audiences, trying to build uh, new audiences, but it's it's not easy. Thank you very much. Um, I want to now bring in um, this uh, 
open source intelligence um, and uh, and turn to Chris for this next question. Um, Chris, can you explain first more broadly for the benefit of those of us who don't really know anything about uh, open source intelligence, how it works and what it's been used for, uh, you know, in, specifically in uh, the war in Ukraine and perhaps, you know, why media should use it more often? Well, it's open source intelligence. Um, open source collection is something that almost every human who reads, <laughs> who reads or watches television or listens to the radio is doing every day. And that is, uh, you know, the collection part we get, but the analysis we don't. So open source intelligence is the collection and analysis of data that is available from open sources or publicly available information to produce actionable intelligence. So what actionable intelligence means is something that someone can make a decision with. So is this, you can have a piece of information, that's great. But if it's, do you know what you're seeing? Do you know what it means? How does it connect to everything around it? And so open source intelligence is, is interesting because it doesn't require billions of euros in being spent on, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, being spent on all kinds of intelligence platforms to collect it and produce it. Uh, and that's, that's one thing is it's, it, it's, extremely cost-effective way of gaining situational awareness. Um, and, and many right now are saying that this sort of new availability, this increased availability of open source intelligence is reducing the fog of war. But as Mary just pointed out, and I think as we've seen, is that you know it can reduce what Clausewitz called the fog of war, but it can also, you know, there's still fog in there, right? So it's, you know, what's being uploaded and fed may be false stuff. So you really, you have to check every source every bit of analysis so you don't just sort of take it at face value so it's again you know <laughs> the reduction of fog of war within it has uh certain vulnerabilities for us and so i think in this case of ukraine what's been interesting is one of the first efforts we saw uh in the early phase information efforts in the early phases of this conflict was when the united states britain and, and other allies were telling everyone the russians are going to invade we're there we've read their plans we've seen the movement of their troops this is what we think they're going to do. Now, many questioned these claims and said, okay, US and Britain, we heard this once before in a place called Iraq. I'm not sure I want to believe you. Uh, and so what really led credibility to those claims was even before Putin's announcement, his special military operation was open source observers on Twitter posting screenshots of military traffic buildups on major routes to Ukraine. You know, all these signs of imminent military action were proven by open source actors, right? Various open source actors. And I think this is, again, where, you know, the, the people may not trust governments and they may not always trust media, but for whatever reason, they will trust their fellow citizens even more, you know, on, on something like this. Like, oh, well, someone collected it. Okay. But, you know, it, it, it add, lends credence to that. Um, and I think in the days following the invasion, these same groups were using, um, they were identifying possible war and collecting data on possible war crimes. They were mapping combat events and even reporting reinforcements moving across from Russia to the front lines. And so I, I have found remarkable the level of accuracy and level of detail to be found in some of the situation maps. I mean, the Wikipedia Ukraine information map, which is all built on open source intelligence, is remarkably accurate. Uh, and I mean, I would I would hold it up against what any government has in their sort of command center in their capital, right? And and if you go on Wikipedia, it costs a lot less, right? That's the other thing is there's a cost factor that is is interesting. 
Um, but we also saw leading up to the war, not just what the Russians were doing, but I was watching this myself, this, this constant feed of NATO and even Swedish aircraft, uh, what their capabilities were and possible missions were as they flew through Eastern Europe conducting reconnaissance missions. Uh, and these were shared on various, you know, flight tracking websites. This is, you know, it wasn't just one side being watched, but all sides sort of being observed, you know, citizens um, able to observe what their governments are doing. And I think, you know, this forces, this, this dynamic, you know, will force a certain, it forces a certain level of transparencies on governments and armed groups in a way that maybe we haven't seen before. Now, obviously this is different. This is a, a large mechanized war, war. There's large pieces of equipment moving and doing things. I think in, in more of an internal conflict, guerrilla type situation, this is a little harder to pull off. But in the Ukraine situation, it's quite clear. So I think in the future, states need to understand that their actions will be identified, analyzed, and tweeted in near real time by the masses and their adversaries. Uh, I think another example in this conflict of the role of, of open source uh, intelligence, and it's used by the media in this case, was the massacre at Bucha where civilians were executed and left in the streets by occupying Russian forces and, you know, later to be discovered by advancing Ukrainian forces, retaking their own territory. You know, Russian prime minister, foreign minister Lavrov claimed, oh, the scene was staged with cadavers after, you know, after we retreated, this is fake. But satellite imagery from Maxar, an open source company, was used by the New York Times to identify bodies in the streets of Bucha two weeks before Russian forces retreated. So, I mean, we, this is a case where a news media outlet was, um, you know, utilizing an open source capability and the analysis to show us, hey, we think there, there's possible atrocities happening here. Uh, to the point where even when the Ukrainian forces went in, I saw a few photo to photo comparisons. Almost, I mean, it was the, what the New York Times was reporting from that. Almost exactly accurate. Right. It made things move, whatever. But I think this is um, this is a prime example of. Uh, you know, you've got citizens using it, you've got media using it. Uh, but again, without the analysis of what you're seeing and without sort of doing fact checking, if you get a video or a photo, you geolocate the photo, what's the, you know, is there a timestamp on the photo? What's the accuracy of, you know, what they're seeing? Do you know what you're seeing? Uh, you have to prove and disprove a lot of things before you can create sort of a finished intelligence product. But I think in terms of real world impact of open source on this conflict is that the revelations that have been, have been produced by open source or OSINT, they've really served to appall Western society at large, and they've generated immense political pressure on Western governments to, to punish Russia and to arm Ukraine. And so arms have been flowing into Ukraine from the West on a massive scale, having a substantial impact on the war, I mean, keeping Ukraine in the fight. Um, OSINT has also played a role in solidifying Ukrainian morale. I mean, evidence-based accounts of Russian losses and interceptions of, of Russian communications has really bolstered and encouraged Russian, I mean, Ukrainian fighters to fight on. Uh, and I think dissemination of Russian atrocities in places such as Bucha and, and you know, these scenes of sort of Ukrainian heroism from places like Snake Island, uh, it only increases their, their will to fight on for the Ukrainians. Uh, and this way, it's not only helped to shore up their morale, but they're really fortifying their Ukrainian national identity. And all these all these sources are really helping them with that. And the one thing I think about OSINT that's interesting is, you know, are we seeing between OSINT and sort of the, the arrival of quantum computing in the future, are we starting to see sort of the end of secrets or are fewer things going to be able to be kept secret based on our ability to observe and analyze 
things happening in the world. I think that is going to be an ongoing challenge because again, you know, it, it also is ripe for deception. But I think this is something we're going to have to deal with in the future because again, you know, it blurs the line between combatants, non-combatants, journalists. In many ways, it's sort of like piracy. If, is the housewife in Antwerp who's part of Anonymous, who's hacking the Russians, is she a legitimate target for the Russians in the war? Has she become a combatant? But when she steps away from the keyboard, is she no longer a combatant, right? When is she, when is she, when is she not? So I think there are huge legal issues. I think we're, you know, I've said it a few times, I think we're going, we're more overdue for a look at the law of armed conflict and the Geneva Convention, do we need to include the information sphere, the cyber sphere? These are things we'll need to figure out. Uh, anyway, that, that's, that's how I see it at this point. But I think, uh, again, all these things, there's a, there's a double-edged sword for each of these. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we're running out of time today, but I would like to just put uh, one final question um, to our guest speaker today, Mary. Um, and it brings us back to the reason why we're in Zagreb um, for the Saving Democracy from Itself seminar. How can we protect the role of free, independent media and journalism as conduits of a better democracy? Well, I think um, in in Europe, um, the importance of, um, if you like, stemming uh, an attitude, uh, a, a kind of a mentality of uh, viewing journalists as um, something that is, uh, you know, because let's let's be clear, um, and you know, we've seen in 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 several examples in recent years uh, the the targeting of journalists within uh, the European Union. A number of journalists have been have been killed in in Europe. Um, so this idea of um, journalists being targeted is not something that is uh, unfamiliar to us, unfortunately. So I think that the, the idea, you know, maintaining this idea of how important uh, journalists are, the role journalists play uh, within a, a democracy, the role in terms of um, holding people in power to account, uh, bearing witness when it comes to uh, conflict, you know, the, the recognition and, and the reaffirmation of, of the role of, of journalists in, in that sense. Um, I think, you know, the, the strengthening of protection frameworks for journalists and, and media workers is really important. There are a number of um, organizations that do uh, really excellent work in terms of uh, protection of, of journalists, whether that's through uh, training of, of journalists, whether that's um, ensuring the journalists are aware of um, how they should go about reporting, whether that's in an active conflict zone, but also an increasingly important um, aspect of, of this is how journalists actually maintain their own personal electronic security. I mean, we've seen how, for example, the, the Pegasus uh, spyware um, issue that a lot of uh, those targeted by that um, were actually journalists, um, including within uh, within Europe. So I think you know the, this the importance of ensuring that journalists know how to work in a way where their personal security, whether that be physical security or electronic security, which can lead to threats to your physical security. Um, is is protected as much as 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 is possible in the world we live in today. But I think it's also important to for for political leaders to constantly reaffirm the importance 
um, of, of, of the work that journalists do. Um, you know, going back again to the Shireen Abu Akhla um, uh, killing yesterday, very interesting to see um, the differences in terms of the responses to her killing by different uh, figures in the US and, uh, and in Europe. Um, so I think, again, the, the need to constantly affirm the importance of the work that journalists do, the need to ensure that journalists um, are as much as possible aware of, um, of how to protect their own uh, personal security to ensure that they continue to do the work that they do. Um, these are all vital aspects of, of how we can further protect uh, journalists. Thank you very much, Mary. Um, that's all we've got time for uh, this week. I'd like to thank our special guest uh, today, Mary Fitzgerald, our senior fellow, Chris Kremidis-Courtney, and of course you, our listeners.